Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Back On today's show, we'll talk about the Peabody Coal Mine bankruptcy and learn about Wyoming Game and Fish's study of wolverines and why tracking them down is not easy. A lot of people would just, they just call them like badasses, really. And how some Native American students say they're lacking support at UW. We're leaving our comfort zone and we need something that can be in place of that. We'll also hear about efforts to reintroduce the black-footed ferret and find out why homes contaminated by methamphetamine is a growing concern. The landlord is the one that's left holding the bag quite often, well, almost 100% of the time. And we're asking you to pledge your support for this program. Give us a call at 1-800-729-5897 or visit us on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. The largest coal producer in Wyoming declared bankruptcy this week. Companies like Arch Coal and Alpha Natural Resources have done so as well over the past year, but this filing is particularly symbolic of the industry's struggles because of the company's size. Peabody Energy is the largest privately owned coal company in the world. Our Inside Energy reporter Lee Patterson joins me here in the studio. Hi, Lee. Hi, Bob. According to S&P Global Market Intelligence, now that Peabody has filed for bankruptcy, more than two-thirds of the coal produced in the Powder River Basin comes from a company that's recently filed for bankruptcy. What happened? Well, the industry is dealing with several factors all at once. What those factors are depends on who you ask. Wyoming Public Radio reporter Aaron Schrank attended a rally in Gillette recently put on by a coal advocacy group called Friends of Coal. He talked with Chris Land, who owns a company that deals with coal dust cleanup. Land blames Peabody's bankruptcy squarely on the federal government. I, I mean, they've got an administration that is totally stacked against them. They've got an EPA, a DEQ, everybody is, is against them. They're being attacked on a lot of fronts. It's a no-win battle. Now, federal environmental regulations absolutely are a factor, but there is much more going on. Maria Altman with St. Louis Public Radio, she sat down with Peabody spokesman Vic Sveck and asked him what happened. He said there are basically two things dragging down the price of coal. The first is the weakness on the economy in China has led to uh, issues with steelmaking, and that has uh, flowed back to metallurgical coal. And we've seen the price of metallurgical coal decline by about 75% in the last five years. Uh, Within the U.S., uh, that's been met also by the abundance of natural gas, which has depressed the price not only of natural gas, but also of uh, coal. So coal is facing decreased demand and serious competition from natural gas. And then the companies themselves aren't in great financial shape. Peabody posted a $2 billion loss last year. But the key here is that many coal companies are carrying high debt levels and are having trouble paying off that debt because demand for their product and revenue from it is down. 
Now, Peabody did try to avoid filing for bankruptcy, in part by selling some of its mines in Colorado and New Mexico. But that deal fell through because the purchasing company just couldn't get the financing together. The result? Svec said that the company just can't sustain that debt-heavy type of balance sheet. So Peabody is essentially using this Chapter 11 filing to get rid of some of that debt. So what will Peabody's bankruptcy proceeding mean for jobs? I, I guess the real question is, are there plans for more layoffs? Well, in his interview with St. Louis Public Radio, Svec said absolutely not as it relates to this filing, this particular action. But he didn't rule out anything in the future. And remember that just last month, Peabody laid off around 235 workers at its most productive mine, North Antelope Rochelle, in the Powder River Basin. And that represented about 15% of its workforce. In a statement, Peabody said this was a response to the weak coal market. And that market isn't projected to get any stronger in the near term. So what happens now? Well, this week, Peabody announced that a bankruptcy court in Missouri approved $800 million of so-called debtor-in-possession financing. That's basically a loan that will allow the business to proceed more or less as usual, you know, paying employees, paying bills, that sort of thing. Beyond that, Peabody is now in the Chapter 11 reorganization process. That's the type of bankruptcy that the company filed for. Alpha Natural Resources and Arch Coal are both going through this process right now. So all of the entities that Peabody owes money to, they sort of all line up and the bankruptcy court just decides who will get paid back and by how much. And as we've seen with previous coal bankruptcies, companies try to cut costs in a variety of ways. Alpha Natural Resources, for example, has asked the court for permission to cut worker benefits. Arch Coal, since declaring bankruptcy, has laid off workers. So there is a lot of uncertainty as to how it will all play out. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson, as always, thank you. Thank you. A North Dakota museum has temporarily closed a Smithsonian exhibit on renewable energy and sustainability after receiving complaints from the fossil fuel industry. As Inside Energy's Emily Guerin reports, the controversy is reminiscent of what happened at the University of Wyoming in 2012 when the school removed a climate change-themed sculpture after protests from the coal industry. It's hard not to notice the influence of the oil and coal industries at Bismarck's North Dakota Heritage Center. Inside the Continental Resources Inspiration Gallery, you can learn about coal reclamation and touch the Bakken shale. You can buy oil-themed chocolate at the gift store. That's why a traveling Smithsonian exhibit that talked about climate change and renewable energy seems like an odd fit. In fact, it was closed just four months after it opened. I went down to the museum the day after the exhibit closed. I was hoping I could see the uh, Green Revolution exhibit. Oh, boy. An elderly volunteer got the museum's communication director, Kim Jondahl, to come down. We stood outside the exhibit's locked door. There was a black curtain drawn across it. She said the plan is to add the North Dakota story to the exhibit and reopen it. The Green Movement... um, can have a little controversy in it um, based on who the person is looking at the exhibit. I guess part of what we want to do too is make sure it's balanced. The exhibit includes panels that talk about green jobs, wind energy, and recycling. There are phrases like kick the oil habit and expensive polluting fossil fuels. Yet John Dahl said they had not received pushback from oil or coal companies. We've had comments of 
let's try to show a balanced perspective. Um, there have not been any comments at all of take the exhibit away or don't have it here at all. Um, but to alter it somehow? Um, no, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to um, respond to that in that the overall consensus I think of all visitors and people who have been through it has been We'd just like to see more about the state and what's going on here. John Dahl is at least partly accurate. According to an open records request made by Inside Energy, no one from the coal or oil and gas industries asked explicitly for the exhibit to be taken down. But in an email dated Monday, February 29th, the North Dakota Petroleum Council, which has given over $200,000 to the museum, said the placement of the exhibit right across from the North Dakota Petroleum Council gallery seemed, quote, inappropriate. To have it just saying that we're terrible people right next to an exhibit where we, um, you know, help buy a T-Rex that I'm sure kids just love. I don't know. It was a little frustrating and disappointing, frankly. Tessa Sandstrom is the communications director for the Petroleum Council. We felt it it was rather uh, inflammatory and, and certainly didn't tell the full truth. That same week, North American Coal, which has donated a quarter million dollars, complained the exhibit, quote, throws coal and fossil fuels under the bus. Both times, museum staff promptly assured the donors their complaints would be taken seriously. The following Tuesday, museum director Claudia Berg made the call to close the exhibit. Really, it was not pressure from anyone. It was our own decision to close it and to make it better. Berg says she had concerns about Green Revolution from day one. She thought it was, quote, lacking enthusiasm and that visitors complained it was boring. This was a discussion we were having much earlier than this. It's happenstance that some of this coordinated the way you have it laid out. Berg plans to reopen Green Revolution after adding more about sustainability efforts in North Dakota. They have asked the same coal and industry groups that complained about the exhibit for more information on how they have become more green. Berg says it is appropriate to ask them because she lacks that expertise. Absolutely. I mean, it, I think it's only fair that we talk to those groups. I'm not going nationally to find out the story. I'm working on the North Dakota story. The Heritage Center is accredited by the American Alliance of Museums, whose donor ethics standards state that museums must maintain control over the content and integrity of their exhibits. Berg says they have not violated this standard. As a museum, we're trusted for our information that we provide our visitors, and we take that very seriously. The real threat lies in self-censorship, what doesn't get said but needs to be said. Becca Economopoulos directs the Natural History Museum in Brooklyn. She claims this is a national problem. That's why she released a letter last March signed by nearly 150 scientists that called upon science and natural history museums to cut ties with fossil fuels. Otherwise, it's difficult to avoid what she calls museum capture. When a museum's oil and gas company sponsors fund exhibits or exert pressure to modify exhibits, that 
then serve to naturalize and promote industry perspectives on energy. This is the first time Green Revolution has generated controversy in the six years it's been on tour. And it's been displayed in other energy states like Wyoming, Colorado, and Texas. Robbie Davis is with Smithsonian's Traveling Exhibitions. Even though this is the first time there's been, you know, a little bit of controversy, it's a great opportunity. Exhibitions are a really cool time to welcome in a whole multiplicity of of those perspectives. Davis supports the idea of adding the North Dakota story as long as the Heritage Center doesn't change any of Smithsonian's original content. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. When we come back, a couple of wildlife stories, one on wolverines and another on the black-footed ferret. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Earlier this month, a federal court in Montana sided with wildlife advocates saying that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service needs to do more to protect wolverines from climate change. Recently, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards took a snowmobile ride into Wyoming's wolverine country to find out how the species is doing there. The snow turns to mush in the warm sun under our snowmobile tread. I'm tagging along with Wyoming game and fish wolverine biologist Lee Taffelmeyer into the south end of the Wind River Range to take down a motion-censored camera he's been baiting with roadkill deer in an effort to take photos of wolverines. It's all part of a multi-state project to count this elusive species in the West. Last year, they took 53 photos of an estimated five animals. After the snowmobile ride, we plan to ski several miles, too. It's just the nature of wolverine research is that it's going to be hard. That's because wolverines live in the highest mountains and are very rare. Lee says trapping in the 19th century nearly wiped them out. Researchers think there's only around 300 in the lower 48 and only those five in Wyoming. But Taffelmeyer says as the largest animal in the weasel family, they're not shy. A lot of people would just, they just call them like badasses, really. That's a one-word description of a wolverine. He says one radio-collared male was tracked from Yellowstone and oil field workers reported seeing him crossing the Red Desert. Then he turned up in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, almost 500 miles away. I mean, this is an animal that's two feet off the ground, weighs 25, 40 pounds, and it just goes, you know, it'll go anywhere. You know, it'll cross the Tetons in a day, you know, across from, from Jenny Lake over to the west side. Anywhere in search of food. Its Latin name is Gulo Gulo, gluttonous glutton. It hunts down snowshoe hares, marmots, squirrels. They've been known to take down animals as big as, like, as a moose before, but that's rare. In winter, though, they're alpine scavengers. There's a story that a wolverine dug down through 20 feet of avalanche debris to find a dead mountain goat. So that's 20 feet of concrete <laughs> what we like just we dug just through. dug through. That wolverine smelled it through that and dug straight down to that carcass. So we'll go up and to the right. Okay. One, two, Today, we learned something about how hard snow digging can be. On our way to collect photos, the snowmobiles get stuck in the fast-melting snow, really stuck, and we decide to turn okay. back. 
But for wolverines, there's no escaping this wet snow. Right now, females are raising young in snow dens. The Wolverine Foundation director, Rebecca Waters. When the snow is really wet and heavy and uh, the water starts to drop out of the snowpack, it's a problem because then the kits get wet inside the den and um, that's potentially, you know, a problem for disease and becoming ill and um, getting cold. Her group isn't one of those challenging the federal decision to list wolverines, but she says she's glad the courts sent them back to the drawing board. Water says with their crampon-like claws and snowshoe-shaped feet, wolverines are an Ice Age animal that persisted into a warming era. You know, the problem with climate change as a threat to a species like the wolverine is the fact that this is a systemic threat. It's, it's at a society-wide and global level. And so I, I think we need to assess what the states are doing and look at how that turns out. By states, she means Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and Washington, working together on a federal grant to count wolverines and study their range. She says states were able to adopt strict regulations to keep sage-grouse from getting listed, so maybe they can do the same for wolverines. Nicole Bjornley with Wyoming Game and Fish says Wyoming hopes to do just that. We classify wolverines as a species of greatest conservation need in the state, um, as well as a protected animal by statute. And so Game and Fish has long recognized that this is a potentially sensitive species, one that we just haven't had the opportunity to really devote some funds and personnel to up until now. To get a better count of wolverines, she says next year they plan to set up 25 more cameras in the Bighorn Range and the National Parks. She says there's even talk of relocating wolverine into the state from Alaska, where there are larger populations. As to the camera I snowmobiled out to see with Lee Taffelmeyer, he gives me a call after he pulls it down a few days later. While he didn't get any photos of wolverines this time... And then it looks like we have a red fox. Oh, we've got a little squirrel here. No wolverines this time. No wolverines this time. No, that's, that's too bad. The elusive wolverine slips away again. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Wyoming Game and Fish say they welcome reports of wolverine sightings. You can see photos and videos of wolverines on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Now looking at another rare species. Wyoming's Game and Fish Department and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are planning a historic venture this summer. They hope to bring black-footed ferrets back to Matitsi, where they were found 35 years ago when the species was thought to be extinct. Penny Preston reports. Black-footed ferrets were thought to be extinct in 1981 when John Hogg's dog brought a dead one to his ranch house near Matitsi. Hogg has since passed away. But on the 25th anniversary of the ferret's discovery near Matitsi, Hogg told the story again. We took it down to taxi dermist here in, in uh, town here, and he said, oh my God, he said, you got a, you got a ferret. And I said, what the hell is that? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what it was. Denny Hammer was a biologist working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service then. He had been looking for black-footed ferrets in southern Wyoming. When Hammer got the call to go to Matitsi, he and another ferret finder started spotlighting on the Pitchfork Ranch next to the hog place. They were driving slowly and looking and looking. Then it happened. His field notes tell the rest. At 6.20, my next uh, recorded uh, entry is, in very bold letters, I saw a ferret, exclamation mark. When it was confirmed black-footed ferrets still lived in the wild in northwest Wyoming, the media and scientists from around the world descended on Matitsi, the tiny town of 300 people 
was known around the world. Eventually, 118 black-footed ferrets were counted on the pitchfork. But in the late 80s, disease struck. Jack Turnell was owner-operator of the pitchfork then. In three years, we lost 30,000 prairie dogs through this area because of the plague. And then the ferret had distemper. The ferret's numbers were down to 18 animals in the wild when it was decided the species had to be rescued and the little predators were trapped and taken to a research facility in Sibyl Canyon. There, they were bred for reintroduction and they were put back out on Wyoming's wild landscape in Shirley Basin in 1991. Black-footed ferrets were also released in Mexico, Canada, and seven other states. Matizzi had always hoped to get black-footed ferrets back, and since a rule was enacted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they could be reintroduced to the area this July. It just kind of became a, kind of a symbol of our, of, our, of our community. That's John Hogg's son, Alan Hogg, who wants them back on the family ranch. We've been kind of been a dream of ours to get the ferrets back here for a long time. Dr. Lennox Baker owns the other ranch where ferrets were found in the early 80s, the Pitchfork. He wants black-footed ferrets back, too. Dr. Baker was so anxious to have the ferrets that he allowed Wyoming's Game and Fish to do a three-year study on his ranch. That was aimed at saving prairie dogs from the plague. It was a bait-based vaccine. It seemed to work because for the first time in 35 years, there seemed to be enough prairie dogs to feed ferrets. The Fish and Wildlife Service says the success of the reintroduction depends on how well the ferrets adapt to the surroundings. From Cody, I'm Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio. Coming up in the program, we'll have stories on meth houses in Wyoming and making Native American students feel welcome on the UW campus. You're listening to Open Spaces. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Back, And I'm Melody Edwards. Many homes or apartments in Wyoming are contaminated by methamphetamine. And if you move into one of those places, you might not know it. It can lead to health problems and be expensive to clean up. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that Wyoming is one of the few states that does not require disclosure of a meth-contaminated home. Sheridan realtor Dan Casey remembers when he first got caught. Casey had a client who had bought a home during a foreclosure sale, and after his client fixed the place up, he tried to resell it. Casey says they were close to a deal when a neighbor stopped by. We got an offer right away on the house, and right during the inspection phase, the potential buyer was walking around, and the neighbor came over and said, oh, the people who used to live here were, were meth users. This is a meth house. Casey and the homeowner were frustrated because it required extensive cleanup. He says local law enforcement and the Department of Family Services both knew that it was potentially contaminated. The, the DFS had been called uh, for drug use. Uh, you know, police department had been called for, for drug use. But these separate parties, uh, governmental parties, were never talking to each other. And this poor, you know, investor got stuck with a contaminated home. 
Cleanup can cost between five dollars and $15,000. Another former realtor, David Walker and Casey, started a firm called 307 Environmental, which is one of the companies in the state that cleans meth contamination. While meth labs where the drug is cooked cause the greatest problem, Walker and Casey claim that simple meth use can also contaminate a home. Walker says cleanup can take a week. What you have to do is remove anything that's a porous item, like your carpets, the curtains, anything that can absorb the, the meth. We remove all that and then we go back and we do a dry clean and then we do a wet couple wet cleans on the whole house. And then we also clean the ducting system because even if you clean a house and then you turn the furnace back on, it'll recontaminate a house. Because of cost, some property owners never clean up a home, and sometimes they are left abandoned. That's what happened to a home in a popular area in Cheyenne that's been abandoned for several years. Lovell Representative Elaine Harvey says that there are several such homes all across the state. To have a meth house that is abandoned and doesn't get improved, doesn't get cleaned up, um, it devalues the property all around them. That's why Harvey tried to pass several pieces of legislation to address the issue. The first would have required notification that a piece of property was a former meth house. Harvey says that legislation was defeated because the majority of lawmakers say it's a case of buyer beware. Harvey tried to get restitution money from the meth users and some state funds to help landlords pay for cleanup. The landlord is the one that's left holding the bag quite often. Um, Well almost 100% of the time. But Harvey says those attempts also failed. The sentiment on the floor as we discussed this was, uh, well, the landlord just needs to be more diligent about who he rents to, and he needs to inspect his property more often to make sure things like this don't happen. Without any legislation, there is no real way for someone to know if they've moved into a meth-contaminated home without testing the home themselves. Harvey worries about unsuspecting families who might move into a contaminated property, especially if they have young children. Cheyenne Dr. James Caswell says children crawling around on a carpet that has soaked up chemicals is a concern. And the child could get seriously ill, but that most of the health concerns for healthy adults would come from moving into a place where meth was cooked. You can get respiratory issues, you can get sinus-type issues, and that's just from the chemicals being irritating. State epidemiologist Dr. Tracy Murphy says research shows that health effects from a place where meth was either cooked or used can vary. It's probably unlikely a person's going to have a high enough exposure to those chemicals to cause uh, serious health concerns, but but some of those chemicals with long-term exposure uh, have been shown to cause cancer. So certainly you, you would want the environment to, to be cleaned up. Back in Sheridan, David Walker and Dan Casey of 307 Environmental have spoken with realtors across the state in an effort to get them to test homes for meth contamination prior to a sale. And they have spoken with a local legislator about letting the public know if a home is contaminated. He says this problem should not be left to landlords and realtors to figure out. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck.
Next month, Lori Nichols will take over as president of the University of Wyoming. She says one of her priorities is building deeper relationships with the tribes on the Wind River Reservation. As Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports, many hope new leadership means UW will do a better job enrolling, supporting, and graduating Native American students. UW senior Ashley Enos is in a crowded ballroom on campus. She's watching a hip-hop artist from the Crow Nation who goes by the name Superman do his thing. I think it's awesome that we have someone that's so into the culture and wants to give cultural awareness to the public. Enos is a member of the Eastern Shoshone tribe. She says there aren't many others at UW. It's a very small number. It'd be less than five. And less than 1% of total students here identify solely as American Indian, just 90 of more than 13,000. Enos is part of UW's Keepers of the Fire, a campus group that promotes Native American heritage and culture through events like this one. I would like to let people know that we are here, that there's Native Americans here. We would like other Native students to come approach us too, to let them know that we're all together. Deborah Littleson coordinates Keepers of the Fire in her spare time. She says the group is one of few beacons of support for Native students. Littleson's full-time job is at the financial aid office, but as a Native on campus, she often finds herself filling a void and offering social or academic guidance to a struggling Native student. If they didn't have me as that voice, that student probably would have dropped out or gone home, which is some of the advice that they received in other offices. Retention rates for Native students remain below the campus-wide average. And despite a handful of scholarship opportunities, there are half as many American Indian undergrads here today as there were 25 years ago. In the past, the tribes pitched in for UW to employ a Native American support person to help Native students, like Renette Tendor. Somebody who is Native and maybe who comes from a reservation understands these complexities and these difficulties and barriers and struggles that we experience as UW students. But the Multicultural Affairs Office cut that position in 2009. Since then, enrollment has tapered off a bit. Tendor was an undergrad here when that go-to person still existed. She says they were a godsend when two of her family members died in the middle of the semester. And my first instinct right away is to just drop out because it had been in the middle of the night and I had to just leave. And I got the phone call the next morning from that Native support person that they already had emailed my professors and don't worry about it. Do what you have to do on the reservation and when you come back, everything will be okay. I probably wouldn't have came back if that wasn't the case. But Tendor says the help she got is missing for today's Native students. Instead of providing support people for each ethnic group, they've consolidated down to just two people and say they can't afford all those positions. Another thing missing for Native Americans on campus, Tendor says, is a place to call home. Culturally, we're very community-oriented. We identify with our community and our peers, and that's what makes us unique. And the majority of us come from the reservation, come down here to go to school, and we're leaving our comfort zone. And we need something that can be in place of that. There's been a decades-long push to build a multi-purpose American Indian Center on campus, a feature found at most of our neighboring state's universities. An architect drew up a floor plan a few years back. UW added the project to its capital facilities plan. But American Indian Studies Director Kasky Russell says it's on pause. We're ready to roll on our side, but I just think it's been dead in the water uh, at higher levels of administration. We haven't heard anything about it. Russell's American Indian Studies program offers a few degrees and some cultural opportunities, 
But he says it can't really deal with things like recruitment and retention. Really pure student support, we don't have that, unfortunately. The um, program doesn't have a position like that. So it's more of informal student support. Russell is looking to bridge the gap between the university and the tribes. He's developing a program that allows students to earn bachelor's degrees without leaving the reservation. And UW is collaborating with Central Wyoming College to prepare more tribal high schoolers for university life. Incoming UW President Laurie Nichols says she wants to build on these efforts. One thing I heard a lot when I was interviewing is that there is really a desire to take whatever has already taken place. And I know there has been some good work, but to really take that to the next level. Nichols says some of her best work as South Dakota State University provost has been coordinating with tribes to get more Native students into the college pipeline. For Wyoming Public Radio... I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Wrapping up the show, we'll talk to the editor of a new anthology about fracking. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Fracking, the technique for boosting oil and gas production, has been around for decades. But chances are you didn't hear about it until recently. In just a few short years, the fracking boom has transformed communities across the country and elicited plenty of emotions from all sides. Fracture is a new book of essays, poems, and short fiction on the topic of fracking, Taylor Brorby was one of the editors of the anthology and will be leading a symposium on it at the University of Wyoming this week. He joined Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce to talk about why anyone should read poetry about fracking. Why were you interested in curating a collection about fracking? Well, I guess I have to be honest, Stephanie, that I, I knew about fracking um, for a while, but I didn't care about it until it came to Western North Dakota, which is where I grew up. It wasn't until I went back home and into the Bakken oil boom that I really started to think, who else out there has some perspective on this? Uh, So this started to become an issue I was obsessed with and wanted to produce a volume that had multiple voices rather than just my own voice speaking on the issue. The overwhelming majority of the pieces in the collection are critical of fracking in the oil and gas industry. Was that intentional or is that just what emerged from the submissions that you received? Sure. I mean, a majority of the pieces were uh, I would say more complicated uh, or wanted to complicate our understanding of fracking. The anthology is essays, poems, and stories about fracking in America. It's not journalism. Uh, It's people creating pieces of art to get us to understand fracking in new and more complicated ways. You can't just say it's good or just say it's bad. You have to develop a story around that. You mentioned that you are from Western North Dakota, How do you think this book, or how has this book been received in your hometown? Well, I was a part of a week-long book tour and went to uh, 
six cities in North Dakota um, to promote the book. The tour in North Dakota was really energizing because it actually allowed us to have public conversations about this issue. It gave people permission to tell their own stories. Art is often touted as a bridge between different viewpoints, different ways of looking at the world. Do you think that ultimately this collection is is a bridge or is it a is it a divider? Well, I hope it's a bridge. I mean, I think literature puts a lot of responsibility on the reader. Uh, literature should be complex. Literature shouldn't necessarily tell us what to think, but give us a story and a process of thinking through an issue. The anthology doesn't so much say, here's our 10-step process of getting away from fracking or the the potential ways to remediate it. Though I think we have some writers who get at different ideas in there about shifting even just the language and how we approach problems. You know, I mean, I think it's a bit reductionist to say, well, we need, you know, to just increase our dependence on wind turbines. I mean, that might be part of the solution, but really I think what the anthology does is seek to shift our thinking, which is the harder and more practical solution. Taylor Borby is an essayist, poet, and editor of a new anthology about fracking. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me, Taylor. Thanks so much, Stephanie. You've been listening to Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear an individual segment again, it's all on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. And on that site, you can listen to old shows, pitch us stories for future programs, and link to our podcast that's also available on iTunes. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.